You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's that time of the week where you get to chat to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist on science-related matters. Give us a call on 011-883-0702 and ask him whatever science curiosity, fascination, explainer for a phenomena, uh, whatever's on your mind that's science-related right now. 011-883-0702. Good afternoon, Chris. Hi, Azza. How are you? Super, thank you. Just so uh, steeped, so deep into the Olympics. It's it's quite fun. It comes around every four years or maybe five, if you look at what the pandemic did. In this case, did. five. In yeah. this case, five, absolutely. Uh, so it's always such a feast, all these different sporting codes. Your favourite moment so far? Must be when England beat South Africa. <laughs> Uh, okay, no, just kidding. Uh, go on, seriously, what's favorite favorite thing so far? Uh, I love athletics generally, you know, all of it. The steeplechase, the discus, the javelin, the athletics, you know, just the running, all of it. So whenever the track and field uh, codes start, I mean, I can't take my eyes off the screen. And you? I was watching the, the, well, the gymnastics has has me just you know, totally transfixed. These people are so amazing. And their upper body strength is just incredible, isn't it? I mean, I was watching some of the women last week, the stuff they do and the speed they're able to get across the mat to do these absolutely incredible things. Mm. I'm just in awe all the time. But there's also quite a lot of science in there and a lot of uh, of, uh, physiology. I was actually talking to a friend of mine at the University of Cambridge, Christoph Schreining, last week. He works actually as a scientist on how the body sweats and how it keeps its temperature because i was i was interested in talking to him because in the women's cycling for example there were some outstanding performances but there were also quite a few casualties of heat stroke and heat exhaustion and i was saying to him look what's the best strategy because some of these athletes are having to perform in sort of 30 35 degree temperatures and some of them come from countries where you know that they're very ill adapted to those sorts of temperatures and i said you know what's your best approach to keep your cool literally as well as metaphorically and he said well a lot of people make the mistake of drinking water said that's a no-no don't do that and i said what how on earth are you supposed to do that and he said well the way he ran the london marathon because i i interviewed him a few years ago actually he just run the london marathon i've never seen anyone run the london marathon jog to a train station get the train from london to cambridge and then jog from the train station (laughs) to a radio studio to turn up and do an interview and he said the way he did it was not to drink anything throughout the entire 26 miles achieving a time of two hours 40 minutes so what does that what do do you do? retain the well, water that's well, already in the no huh? you you don't he said he weighed himself he oh. lost four or five kilograms which was chiefly going to be water yes but he did take water from the water stations but what did he do with it poured it all over himself to cool himself and he said every opportunity he said you're, you're cutting out the middleman if you drink the water it's got to go through your gut divert blood from muscles that need blood to the gut to get the water, take the water to all around your body, which is already under load and stress, so it's going to soak up loads of the water before actually it gets anywhere near a sweat gland, and eventually you might see some sweat and that might cool you down. No, 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 he said. Actually, if you sweat the water out and you lose weight, you have less weight to carry, so your body's doing less work as the race goes on when you're tired, so you can actually go better pour the water directly onto yourself Mm -hmm. and you will cool down much more efficiently, much more quickly, and your performance will improve. 
Wow. And he said that some of the some of the female cyclists, he said, had obviously uh, been very well trained and were well heat adapted, but also were doing these very same techniques to keep their temperature right. Because all the time you're not too hot, mm -hmm. you don't have to waste blood flow to your skin to cool down. You can keep the blood in the muscles where it needs to be driving the muscles. And oh. that's how you get the best performance. So Incredible. it's amazing what you can learn about physiology from just watching the Olympics. Isn't yes. It? And as you say, cut out the middleman, cut out the internal workings of the body, <laughs> just to cool <laughs> it off directly. That's such a great insight. Thank you, Chris. Um, we go to Alan now. Alan is in Randburg. Listen, give us a call this afternoon to chat to the Naked Scientist, 011-883-0702. Hello, Alan. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? We're very good. And you? Excellent. Very well, thank you. I've got a question for Chris. Uh, in terms of space exploration, what is the method of navigation through the solar system when uh, obviously one does not have GPS? And what is the point of reference for navigation? Oh, lovely question. Yeah, it is. Well, Alan, a lot of the trajectories of these craft are set in advance anyway. So they follow well-executed computer programs that, that know where they're going and they can be tweaked because, of course, people on, on the ground are following the trajectory of the craft and can then alter their trajectory. They can also use a range of different metrics in order to know where they are. They know how fast they're going. They've got various other frames of reference and you can use distant stars because unlike planets, which are going to move around relative to you, right. distant stars are so far away that they're going to appear relatively fixed in position. So you can use those as nav navigational cues to work out uh, where you are and as a reference. So there's a range of different ways of doing this, and it's all done partly by tweaking from the ground as well, because these things do have proper programs that they follow, but there are some uncertainties in there. And so superimposed on the automated flies, will be some manipulation to make sure things stay perfectly on track to take into account unforeseen eventualities and perhaps a uh, slight drift off course that you hadn't planned for. Hmm. Alan? That sounds excellent. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for the question. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, we do see that in the movies, for instance, they'll say we're on this, but if we do this, if we follow with the curvature of the, or if we follow with the rotation of the earth, um, we'll land up at X point. And if we do mm. this, we'll land up at Y, you know, in order to be able to re-enter, you know, I think, uh, fiction. It's or, all physics. It's, it's all, but it's mm -hmm. all physics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what amazes me, uh, I've got a very good friend, John Zarnecki, who, I met first when I was a medical student. I wasn't very old. It was the mid-1990s, mid and he came and gave a talk, and I sat there in awe as this guy said, I've helped to design this lander, the Huygens lander, which is going to go down onto Titan, which is Saturn's biggest moon, and it's going to take seven years to get to the Saturnian system when this thing blasts off. And it did. And it took off, and I next spoke to John Zarnecki in 2004 when it arrived at Saturn, and his probe landed on the surface of Titan and sent back pictures. We've become good friends since then. Uh. We, we keep in regular touch. But it's all physics, and you, can, you do lots of very careful mathematics. You plan these things with a lot of decimal points and enormous precision in your calculations, but we're really rather good as a species at doing this kind of thing now. And you can, you can land probes on Mars. You think the Curiosity mission, for example, the, and the Mars Express mission... They have put down um, these things on the surface of Mars in a precise position that they said they were going to. Hmm. And it's, it's just amazing skill. 
and planning on the part of the engineers, technologists and, and the mathematicians who do all these incredible calculations to work out where these things are going to go and how to get them there. Yes, and I imagine when they do miss, it's by point, not, 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 not. <laughs> well, things do go wrong. I yes. mean, another guy who um, we were very fortunate to interview, he has unfortunately died now, but that was Colin Pillinger, another pioneer of space exploration. He was behind the Beagle 2 mission, which was destined to land on Mars. And Beagle 2 disappeared without trace, but was found in recent years again. We now know where Beagle 2 is. It crash-landed. It did get to Mars. It did land where it said it would, but unfortunately it didn't deploy the way it should have done. And so it unfortunately did crash and come to an untimely end. But it's there, and they got it there. So uh, you think these are travelling over millions of kilometres, these craft, and arriving with that unerring accuracy and precision. It's just an amazing achievement. Absolutely. Let's go back to the lines. We've got Keith in Athol. Hello, Keith. Hi, Zen. Hi, Dr. Chris. Hi, Keith. Um, I've got two questions regarding COVID um, asymptomatic people and why they don't get ill. Mm-hmm. So specifically, do, do their bodies not recognize the virus as an invasive um, organism? And secondly, do their immune systems actually produce antibodies or is there something else at play here? All right. Great questions. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Keith, it's the other way around. And what we've learned about this is that people, when they first catch coronavirus, almost at day zero of infection, you can tell whether someone's going to do fine or whether they're not going to do fine. And it's all down to how well your immune system wrestles with this thing from the get-go. And people who make a really good, really aggressive, really effective immune response right up front tend to have few or no symptoms, a short disease course, and recover uneventfully. People who don't manage to control the virus at the first outing then go into this immune spiral of inflammation where the immune system fails to control the virus, so the virus grows a bit more, the immune system gets more frustrated and recruits in more elements of the immune response, which in turn does damage to your tissue and in turn causes more of an immune reaction. And you go into this immune tailspin where the immune system takes over as the main cause of damage instead of the virus. And it takes a while for the immune system to then neutralize the virus. In the process, you've done a lot of damage to your host tissues, chiefly the airways and the lungs, which is why people then get low on oxygen. But also you can then get spillover of that inflammatory damage into other organ systems, including the heart, the nervous system, pancreas, liver and kidneys. We're still understanding or trying to understand how this happens, why this happens, and also how this whole concept of long COVID fits into this, which at the moment is very much a black box. We don't know what's in there. But certainly the people who control it the best are the people who do the best mm. oh, fascinating um keith thanks a lot for that question let's go to dr masilela next hello dr masilela hello Aza, how are you well, well how are you no i'm all right i'm all right it's dr Rony masilela here how are you dr chris i'm all right how are you yes man you know i i just need your help here man i've got a bit of a question you know my physics is not that good, you know. Um, I only did physics once. I want to know about the waves. You know, we have these waves on the um, on the oceans. Mm. Number one, what causes these waves, and why don't we have the same waves on 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 lakes? Because there are huge lakes, which you know, at a distance they look like oceans, but they don't have these waves. Can you kindly help me? Thank you, Dr. Masidela. Chris. Well, waves are displacements of the material. 
So if you put some energy in, then the molecules of water are moving together in one direction. And in the same way as a Newton's cradle, where you drop a ball in and it hits the other ball, and hits the other ball, and, and you get the ball at the far end flying off, energy is transferred as a wave travels. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's a displacement up and down of the material, but it's, it moves along through that material. And the amplitude of the waves, how tall they are, is proportional to how deep the water is. So if you've got a certain amount of energy and you're distributing that energy over a really great depth of water, you'll only get a small ripple potentially uh, over such a big area. But as you go into shallower water, because you're now distributing all that energy into a much smaller column of water, the column of water rises up and becomes much higher proportionally because the water's shallower. And so that's why waves tend to rear up as they get towards the beach, but they may appear as just a ripple out on the open ocean. That's not to say you don't get massive, monstrous waves out in the open ocean, but that's a little bit different because another thing comes into play, which is what we call superposition. And if you get lots of waves arriving at the same point at the same time, the resulting wave where all the waves meet is the sum of the size of all of the individual waves. So if you get some waves which are going up and they're are meeting at one point in time, then the combined wave is all of the upgoing waves added together minus all the downgoing waves at that point. And so that's why you can get some absolutely monstrous waves out in the middle of the open ocean. In the context of lakes, you do indeed get waves on lakes. And part of the reason for that is lakes are subject to the wind. And a big driver of where waves come from is wind, especially wind hitting tide. If the water is trying to move one way and the wind is trying to move the other way, it pushes on the water surface and can throw the water up into waves, which then slowly began to build up. Because the ocean is vast and there's a much greater distance over the ocean surface over which this process can happen, waves can become a lot bigger in the ocean than in lakes, which are not tidal and smaller. But you can get waves in rough weather over big lakes. And indeed, I've been out on big lakes when weather systems have blown in and it's got pretty rough. And if you, if you go across Lake Kariba, which is, um, you know, in, in Zimbabwe, mm. you get some, some wild weather on there sometimes and, and it can get a little bit choppy. So it's really about size. And okay. lakes, yes, there are some big lakes, but the oceans are much bigger. And the oceans okay. talk to each other by, they're all in connection, so therefore energy can be transferred over enormous distances and uh, with very little resistance and lots of wind acting on that water to make the waves bigger. Wonderful. Thank you for that question, Dr. Masilela. Next, let's go to Bedford View with Poloso. Hi, Poloso. Hi, Aza. Hi, Chris. Hi. I just Hi, Poloso. want to find out. Mm. Yeah, 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 uh, newborn babies, why is it that they get hiccups uh, more often than adults? And why is it that their hiccup is, is so intense that it shakes like their whole body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, the, the reason for this is that um, well, babies have a more primitive nervous system. And so it may well be that part of the hiccuping is just because the, the nervous system is, is wiring itself up still when you're a baby and you're more likely to be subject to the process that causes hiccups just spilling over into the part of the nervous system that makes you hiccup because the, the brain's more immature. Hiccuping can also be caused by uh, stimulation to the visceral structures in, say, the food pipe, your gullet or esophagus. So if, if that is getting stretched by food, or wind, for example, if you've got a pocket of wind, as when babies are suckling, they'll often swallow a lot of air, and that can make an air bubble happen in the tummy, which can push onto the esophagus and onto the diaphragm, which is supplied by the phrenic nerve. That irritation 
can feed back and cause a bout of hiccups in babies. And why a whole baby's body shudders is if you think about how big a baby is, then most of its mass is not in its arms and legs and its skeleton when it's a newborn baby. It's actually very small, doesn't weigh much, but its lungs and its diaphragm, which is what helps it to breathe, are relatively quite big in proportion to the mass of the body. So the hiccuping movement is moving not very much mass, but it's big. And so therefore it has the effect of making the whole baby shake because the baby's not very big. When we get much bigger, we still move quite a bit when we hiccup, but just not quite so much yeah. as a newborn baby. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> just visually, just seeing them. I can see them. Um, let's go to Ronnie next in Madrid after that question from Puluso. Hi, Ronnie. What do you have for us? Hi. I'd, I'd love to know why are the majority of people in the world right-handed ah. and right-footed? <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. Ronnie, we don't know. You, you've asked this one of these questions that we just don't know. 90% of the world's population are right-handed. And the kind of get-out-of-jail-free question that people will always supply you with as, in terms of an answer to this is they'll say, and this is because the dominant hemisphere in your brain is the left okay. one, and that's where language is. And language is in the dominant hemisphere, and the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body, so 90% of people are right-handed. And all that's done is to put the can a bit further down the road because it <laughs> still leaves the question, well, why are left, why are left brains dominant in 90% of the population? We don't know. We don't know why the nervous system is asymmetric in that way. The left brain has a different role than the right brain. The two complement each other and provide different processing and different contributions to how we work. We don't know why there is that asymmetry, but of course it's not 100% because 10% of people are left-handed and a proportion of left-handers will have their language being processed on the right side of their body, though not exclusively. So there's a further fly in this ah. ointment. So uh, we don't know the answer to your question, but you can extrapolate that to say, well, hang on, step back and look at the human body as a whole. There are lots of things that are asymmetric about us. Although we look symmetrical in the mirror with two arms, two legs, you know, fingers and thumbs on each side, two eyes, two nostrils, Actually, look inside the human body, you'll see the heart is usually on the left mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time. The liver is on the right, the spleen's on the left. left. Your right lung has got three lobes to it, your left lung has got two and a sort of f weird bit over the top of the heart called the lingula. Why is that? How does the body put itself together in that way? We don't know. We, we understand the mechanism by which the embryo gives itself that asymmetry but we don't know why it has that particular configuration. We just know how it puts itself together, and we don't know why nature arrived at that particular configuration, although it does sometimes do it the other way around, and a favourite in medical exams is people with a condition called dextrocardia. <laughs> and this is where people's hearts are not on the left, but on the right. And you'll get invited as a, a medical student or a trainee doctor, go and examine this patient's heart. And then you go and feel where their heart should be and you can't feel anything and you think it's a bit strange. It doesn't have a heart, but they're alive in front of me, so they must have one. And actually it's on the other side of their body. Wow. Wow. Sure. That is uh, fascinating, especially as you said about left-handers and the, uh, the the fact that that what their left hemisphere would be on the right. Just so interesting. Um, here's a question for you to ponder in the week ahead, Chris. Before we reconnect, because we're out of time. Sam and Tembisa says, "Why is human sex so noisy compared to other animals?" <laughs> sex in the no, animal no, I've got kingdom. some cats that insist on making a racket near where I live, and the foxes make a hell of a racket when they're at it. So oh, I don't think it's exclusively that. the sole preserving 
other humans. No, he says sex in the animal kingdom is done with such dignity and in silence. But I'm saying it's not. I it's mean, these not, cats yeah. that I've heard outside my bedroom window are definitely not. They have any dignity. <laughs> Chris, thank you. I didn't think the answer would come that Pleasure. quickly. Thank you. Till next week. Until next time.